0: Welcome to Forward, a podcast from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers. going to be delving into politics and Canada's role in the world. We'll be exploring the idea of populism in global politics and what it means for us here in Canada. My guest today is a PhD candidate and a researcher and lecturer in Canadian Studies at Brock University, Ibrahim Barada. Ibrahim completed his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with a concentration in International Relations at Carleton University and an MA in Canadian American Studies, a joint program between Brock University and the State University of New York at Buffalo. Ibrahim is currently finishing his PhD at Laurentian University, where his research explores populist influence in a Canadian-American cross-border context. He is also an adjunct professor in sociology at Niagara University in Niagara Falls, New York. He brings a great mix of academic research and on-the-ground experience to his work. After completing his MA, he worked in Parliament in Ottawa for about seven years with different members of Parliament on various national and international portfolios. His most recent political role supported the Minister of Public Services and Procurement Canada. In the past year, Ibrahim has appeared on local and national media many times to share his expertise and analysis of current events and we are very glad to finally have him here with us today. So welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Yes, reading that through, you're a
0: very busy person, so uh, <laughs> so we're we're glad that you've made the time for for us today. Now, I said we're talking about populism mm-hmm. and I th- think I know what populism is, but I certainly couldn't give a definition of it. So maybe we can just start with talking
1: about what populism is. It's a very interesting question, and it's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, depending on what populist scholar you speak to, they'll have a completely different definition of what populism might be. But in the general terms, what you see is this idea of anti-establishmentarianism, this idea of anti-elitism, this idea of pitting the people against 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 that establishment and against that elitist Uh, uh, political circle, and you can go beyond just simply the political circle, but you can look at the elitist economic circle as well. Populism has its roots in politics, but can be seen elsewhere uh, uh, around the world. And in Canada, you can look at the COVID pandemic, for example, as as a classic way of, of, of analyzing populism. You can look at economic populism. You can look at political populism. You can look at social populism. And you've seen different ideas of what populism might appear, uh, might be. For instance, if you look at Latin America, populism uh, in Latin America tends to be socialist populism. Uh, populism in the United States tends to be right wing populism. Uh, with you know the rise of the Bernie Sanders type populist uh, in Canada, you do have a mix of both uh, in a sense, depending again on who you talk to, because it's just such a broad phenomenon, and it, it's one that does require additional research in because there is a lack of populist analysis in Canada, there's a lack of comparative American Canadian populist analysis as well in the in the literature and the scholarship. Uh, and it's something that that requires additional attention. So we, we can understand why society is heading down in that direction, particularly when we're looking at the rise of Trumpism and the continued the continued effects of, of Trumpism to this day. Uh, uh, and, and Trumpism is not going away anytime soon. So this is This is something that's absolutely necessary when we're looking at, uh, at, at populism and why we need to continue to, to to analyze populism.
0: So, so is populism good or bad for democracy, or does it, um, or is it just a thing that happens to be, and it can be either? So,
1: interestingly, it depends on who you ask as well. Right? <laughs> the populist <laughs> would tell you that the, that populism <laughs> is fantastic for democracy; it provides a voice for the people. The establishment will tell you that populism is bad for democracy, since it goes against the the liberal democratic institutions. It delegitimizes the democratic institutions that exist within society. So if you were to ask me what what my opinion is on this, I, I would I would argue that it definitely does delegitimize or it threatens the sanctity of our democratic processes and the actual uh, institutions that exist within our society. And worryingly, that is you know this is what we've we fought to protect for so many years, and we are seeing the fractures of our democratic institutions emerging as a result of you know Trumpism or as a result of this. Continuous attack on 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 uh, on our democratic institution. An example would be Trump's attack on the electoral process. For instance, right, delegitimizing the electoral process and delegitimizing uh, the voting uh, the voting approach that that people have adopted for years. Uh, at this point, that being said, is it a perfect system? No, that's a whole other debate. But uh, we we definitely need to consider obviously revamping and fixing errors and problems with the system. To delegitimize is to effectively uh, uh, break down the system from within.
0: So it sounds to me like you're suggesting that populism is linked to extremist views within the society
1: there are there are populists that do adopt extremist views. It's not always that a populist will be uh, an extremist per se. Sanders, for instance, is an excellent example of where populism does not necessarily lead to extremism. but what we see with Trumpism, for instance, is this approach of of extremism that does become the byproduct of populism. It's tied into xenophobia. It's tied into na- uh, uh, ethno nationalism. It's tied into nativism, and this, in a, in an effect, leads to more polarization in, in an already polarized society. And so it's, it's definitely a divisive phenomena. The idea, and going back to the definition, the idea of pitting the people against the elite is... In an, in and of itself, a divisive approach, and so it is a divisive f- phenomena to begin with.
0: So you mentioned ethno nationalism uh, there. Can you can you explain that?
1: Right. So in, in a sense, uh, if we want to look at around the world, around the Western world, and the rise of populism, we see a lot of them rooted within uh, an approach to uh, to remove the diversity or to uh, cleanse the diversity. I, I dare say. And, and scaringly say that it, it, is, it is, in a sense, uh, a dangerous approach. I can list out a couple of examples here uh, of populist slogans that can just give you an idea of what that means. So this idea, for instance, of Trump and make America great again is a nostalgia for the past when things were simpler, when white superiority was at its, at its height, when economic prosperity was high, when power, uh, when American power in the globe and around the world was at its height. And so uh, uh, these are entrenched in the populist rhetoric. So if we look around the world, we have, for instance, uh, Marine Le Pen in uh, in France, and their slogan is France for the French, right? In Brexit, the idea was take back control. Uh, in uh, Germany, in the, the party alternative for Germany was our culture, our home, our Germany. In Poland, uh, we have pure Poland, white Poland. This was the Poland's Law and Justice Party in Sweden. Sweden, we have the Sweden Democrats with Keep Sweden, Swedish. So these, uh, these slogans uh, effectively are tying back to these racist groups effectively and this, uh, uh, this appeal for a more homogenous society. And we've been down that route before, right? We've seen this in history and we know what happens when we, uh, when we uh, go down that route. And this is why, you know, again, another reason why populism is very important to analyze,
0: so who becomes a populist leader? Do these tend to be people coming from that um, anti-establishment background, or do these tend to be elite who are leveraging the language of populism to further their their
1: ends? So interestingly, it uh, I subscribe to the approach that Populism is a political strategy, and um, y- y- you you see the rise of populism as a political strategy for success in in the polls and success amongst the base. And so, when we look at when we look at the populists, they tend to emerge. And we look at you can see them in the United States uh, as a classic example. They tend to emerge as the the voice of the pe- they they claim to be the voice of the people, uh, attempting to drain the Washingtonian establishment, the Washingtonian swamp. Uh, in an attempt to, you know, give give back to the people what has been taking from them from the elite, but you know, from analysis and from you know different different uh, the scholars, they would they would easily and and just from from a regular point of view, anyone who's analyzing this can tell you that these anti elitists tend to just revert to the elitist ways to begin with they claim to be in their rhetoric anti-elitist and anti-establishmentarian but in the long run they are very much a part of uh, quite a few are very much a part of the actual uh, uh, establishment or they become re-entrenched in the establishment to begin with so uh, there are Uh, There are a lot of of ways for them to uh, uh, provide in their rhetoric an appeal for anti-elitism and a continuous appeal for anti-elitism, but that does not uh, necessarily mean that they are anti-elitist. Okay. So you've
0: mentioned a number of international examples where, where we're seeing populist rhetoric, populist slogans. Is there an increase in populism globally? And if so, where is that coming from?
1: Right. And so you can tie this back to this idea of economic disparity. And that is one classic approach to, to analyzing populism. A lot of people are suffering, Uh, uh, economically suffering. There are neoliberal inequalities that exist as a result of the current systems that are in place. And these often push forth disparities that don't allow the average person to make it in a sense, right? And when there is a global economic downturn, it's often these people that are impacted. When there is a national economic downturn, it's often these people that are impacted. So in a sense, when a politician emerges and, and adopts populist rhetoric. The approach is appealing to people who are often ignored by the political circles and by the establishment. So you can see a real reason why uh, the average folk would support uh, a leader. And again, we're not talking about someone that's in uh, complete incomplete support of someone like Trump or someone like Nigel Farage in, in the UK, but as someone who – has an, uh, does not necessarily realize the extent of the the interconnectedness and the complexity of the the, the neoliberal inequalities that exist, but has often been given a shorthand in in, in the long run, and so these. Populists, populists, and the, the rhetoric that they espouse are often very appealing to people who are given the short a short hand in the long run. It's 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 worrisome. It's worrisome because to begin with, there are disparities that exist, and the political elite, so called quote, quote unquote, the political elite don't necessarily pay attention to the disparities that exist out there, and, and they ignore them. And, you know, Brexit is a classic example where, you know, Lon- London – uh, uh, was uh, an area where the populists, uh, sorry, that people rejected this idea of Brexit and the populist rhetoric that emerged. But outside of London, where there are more economic disparities, is where people tended to support Brexit. And you see that uh, in terms of Trump as well, right? You see people supporting uh, uh, Trumpism simply because they are uh, economically disadvantaged. You can look at Canada in a COVID. Uh, perspective in a sense it applies it applies very very well people are are fatigued people are are COVID fatigued? And, you know, they are looking for an escape and a populist that comes out, i.e., Maxime Bernier from the People's Party of Canada, right? Uh, espousing this populist rhetoric, uh, saying that, you know, it, the problems are all based on the establishment that exists within Parliament. Uh, these are effectively appealing narratives that can get people to support that rhetoric, right? And that's where you see the rise of populism. Coming into play. Now, in Canada, we haven't necessarily seen a more extreme uh, version of this as you have in the United States, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen in Canada. And that's what we're kind of worrying about is that we are kind of heading down that route uh, in the long run. Uh, Nick Nanos and uh, Michael Adams. Uh, both pollsters are both saying that we've been successful in Canada at remaining ahead of the curve, at remaining ahead of the trend. But does that mean that Trumpism or Brexit won't happen in Canada? No. Uh, It's very much a possibility. It's very much a reality that we might face and something that we need to be concerned about. How
0: do we in Canada um learn from what we're seeing happening elsewhere and kind of what maybe signs or symptoms um, do we need to be wary of so that we don't get complacent and wake up some morning with results that People are largely unhappy with.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess you're asking me, in a sense, to solve the populist problem, and this is not necessarily something that. I <laughs> Sure, you've got lots of time on your hands. I'm yeah. sure you've got it all figured it's, out. It's, it's very complex. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. And and the, you know, one of the things that we can we can pay attention to here is this idea of an econ- economic uh, insecurity or economic dis- uh, disparity uh, that exists. Uh, another thing that we can look at is this idea of misinformation or a lack of education. On whatever it may be, if we want to take COVID as an example, uh, a recent study that came out of the UK showed that the lack of communication between the government to the people uh, has allowed for an information vacuum to emerge. And that's when you see the rise of these conspiracy theories, the rise of these, you know, uh, and it's essentially coming out to fill a void that exists. Um, and, and that is an issue that we, we do see here in, in Canada. And it's an issue that we see in the United States. If you want to look at a non-COVID example, uh, and you want to look at an an uh, an ethnocultural example, the the argument that emerges uh, in the United States is that, and this is what Donald Trump came out with his in his you know first campaign speech. When he was running his election, saying that Mexicans are X, Y, and Z, and we can't accept Mexicans, and they are rapists, and they are murderers, and some of them are good, but you know most of the most of them are bad, and the ones that come here are bad, and you know this uh, misinformation, these mistruths, are effectively uh, allowing uh, people to you know run firstly to the populist and the appeal that they're trying to portray and two to generate this understanding of oh Mexicans are coming and taking our jobs when in reality that is you know the farthest thing from truth and this is something in sociology that we look at uh, we call it the frustration aggression thesis where they don't necessarily realize that you know Mexicans aren't coming to take away their jobs but the easiest way for them to uh, lay blame on the, the lack of job or employment that they have have is to uh, pin- pinpoint a group of people that are working or are employed, uh, uh, are employed, and these are of different ethnic origin. And so we're going to, you know, pinpoint and attack those people. And that's what Trump is appealing to, in a sense, right? Trump is uh, trying to spark and exacerbate that just so that he can get, you know, the votership and in, in, in to appeal to his base and to appeal to the people that like that kind of rhetoric.
0: So you mentioned that Trump is an- isn't dead um, that it's still around I wondered if you have any thoughts on what you're seeing um, happening now and just for context we are recording this at the end of May the um, the US Senate just turned down creating creating a uh, I don't think inquest is quite the right word an investigation into the events of January Mm 6th where is where is Trumpism now and do you have thoughts about where it's going or what we're likely to see
1: Trumpism has fractured the Republican Party, and I dare I say the moderates in the Republican party who we in the past would have considered the far right or the further right, not necessarily the far right people are the moderates in a sense compared to the trump uh, the trump the loyal trump uh supporters. There has been fractures within the Republican party, and there are there's a reason for those fractures. populist strategies work populism works, division works, and these Populist sympathizers are, in effect, attempting to revive or to protect the Trump. Rhetoric that emerge because they know it works. Uh, someone like uh, Ted Cruz, who, oh by the way, is an elitist, <laughs> is an elitist. Would you know uh, espouse the same kind of narratives that Trump uh, would espouse? And you know, a classic example of elitism. I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but a classic example of elitism is you know leaving Texas right to, in the middle of a storm and you know a state crisis and going. You know abroad for a vacation uh, when people are suffering and that's a classic example of elitism and you know this idea of protecting the Trump rhetoric is important to the uh, to the Republican Party because they're trying to win in the next election right and so why would they give up a strategy that works and so to protect the Trump narrative uh, is to effectively vote down uh, an investigation on the January 6th uh, story of the capital, and that that's just a classic political move that you would see. Whether or not it's a popular in populism or not, or a populist approach or not, it is a classic political move. And you saw this with the outstanding of Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney was a more moderate voice among the Trump uh, supporters, uh, and she questioned Trump's role. She questioned Trump's approach to the electoral process uh, and to you know uh, questioning the electoral process, and she was effectively punished by the Republican Party for uh, voicing her views on an anti-Trump platform. And so it it, it is not necessarily going to go away, even if Trump doesn't run again. Right. Even if Trump, I'm not going to predict the future here, but even if Trump doesn't run again, the rhetoric espoused by Trump is going to remain because Mm. it worked in the past and they don't want to give that up.
0: So then what impact is or has Trumpism had on Canada or globally on other global leaders has had how has how has this shift after eight years of Obama uh, and democratic mm-hmm. party leadership, and then the shift to this very dramatic shift to to Trumpism. What kind of impact has has that had on Canada?
1: See, Canada Canada was in a unique scenario where pre Trump, they they had a good relationship with with the Obama administration and with. Uh, Justin Trudeau developing that "quote unquote" bromance uh, with with Barack Obama, and uh, uh, you see that kind of friendship reemerging now with uh, Joe Biden as well. And it's a good it's a good thing for our, our our relationship with the United States because you know Trudeau and Joe Biden have had a past relationship to begin with. But what you saw was Canada constantly fighting fires. Right, it was a it was a nonstop fighting fires from the renegotiation of NAFTA to the USMCA, from uh, you know uh, a threat of putting military at the border, uh, uh, you know, uh, th- and something unheard of in our Canadian American relationship. From you know uh, rejecting people at the border to you know we could keep we could keep you know listing out one one after the other here. It was really a tumultuous time for our politics, and I have to. I have to give kudos to uh, Christian Freeland, who really played the political game right. It was very difficult to deal with an erratic Trump government. I mean, nonetheless, she managed to 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 kind of keep uh, the the relationship alive until you know Joe Biden came aboard. So it really was a difficult time for Canada. Uh, uh, we can, I mean, we could just sit here and talk about economic partnerships and economic, you know, the constant threat of of tariffs and on our trades uh, did impact our economy. It did. It didn't only impact Canadian economy. It also impacted American economy. People on both sides of the border suffered from that. Whether we like it or not, we are a globalized uh, a society, and, and the world is a globalized society. We rely on each other for our econo- economic prosperity. These policies can appeal to some base, uh, some base supporters, but they don't necessarily come to fruition in the long run, as some would seem. And you know, the impact on the American economy was huge as well. So. Yeah, this this was attempted by previous Republican you know leadership. This was attempted by other leaders. Uh, you still see an America first approach with Joe Biden. You do see an America first approach, and this is something that you would most likely see as a result of a global global economic uh, downturn as a result of the COVID nineteen pandemic. But in the long run, when we look at our relationship with the United States now, at least we are able to have dialogue at least we're able to have that conversation. Something that I always say to my students and something that I always say to anyone who would listen <laughs> is that the issues that we see in our society today can disappear if we, are, if we allow ourselves to converse with people. If we don't, if we cut that off, if we say, oh no, he's a Republican, oh no, he's a conservative, oh no, he, he's a liberal or she's a liberal or whatever it is, and we say I don't uh, I don't listen to that ideology I don't like that person and we no longer have that uh, uh, democracy or this ability to talk with each other then we start to lose the basis of our democracy the conversation democracy is about compromise and if we can't compromise and if we can't converse with the next person well then we're gonna we're gonna find ourselves in a very polarized society that is based on factionalism right that is based on I'm in this camp and you're in that camp and we're gonna fight until whatever camp rises. And that's not what what the goal of democracy is. And that's the beauty about what we have now with the Biden administration is that Trudeau can actually talk to the Biden administration, even if there's going to be disagreements. Keystone XL Pipeline, excellent example of a disagreement, but there's still a conversation. There's still a conversation about what else can we do to alleviate some of the issues that exist in our societies. And from a global perspective, has Trump's
0: success, at least for one turn, with this populist rhetoric, has that emboldened other global leaders who were perhaps already inclined to be populist leaders?
1: Mm -hmm. So for a populist society, for a society to be populist, successfully populist there needs to be elements of polarization that it, within that society and you do see within the within around the western world and around the globe really is a rise of populist, uh, uh, populist strategies and populist sentiments. Uh, whether or not they're always populist is a whole different scenario. But you do see, for instance, in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro, um, and you know we can look at COVID, his COVID response, right? We could see with you know uh, 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 Boris Johnson and his COVID response, and we could see you know with. Populous I, I I don't have any research on this, but just from simple observation, you could see that populist countries or countries that leaders espouse some populist rhetoric, you do see a correlation, for instance, where there is less success in COVID-19 strategies and implementation and, and deterrence. And you do see that, in terms of my own opinion and as an observation, you do see that around the globe with these uh, the populist countries. So it, it is definitely a, a phenomena that does exist globally and that there is a rise in that. Does that mean that it came from Trump? No, absolutely not. The United States has always been a populist society. Uh, the the uh, If you look at Canada, we've had historically populist parties that existed. You want to look at the precursor to the NDP, the CCF, that came from the roots of populism. You want to look at the Reform Party, that's populist, right? So it doesn't necessarily... Uh, emerge from Trump. Trump maybe lit the fire uh, in more recent times that kind of gave more of a momentum for populism to kind of re-emerge. And we also, again, have to look at these economic disparities as well. Populism is very much a feature of the American political system. It exists there. It is a part of that. It's not going away anytime soon. It very very well will remain there, whether it's Trump or the next person. It's going to be a part of that society.
0: Okay, this could be a terrible question. (laughs) So I may (laughs) edit this one out just
1: to give give you a heads up.
0: Um, Does populism tip over into authoritarianism?
1: it's a very okay. difficult question <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult question because th- this is where i would say authoritarian author- authoritarianism can have populist tendencies and can be populist, but populism doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be authoritarian.
0: So there's a, there's a lot of gray areas. I'm I'm gathering from our conversation. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh my goodness. I I gotta tell you, when I first started researching populism, I I was I was banging my head on the wall because there is a lot of gray areas. Because you could sit down and listen to a speech and say, oh my god, that's a populist speech, and look at the rhetoric that's being espoused, and et cetera, et cetera. But the leader isn't necessarily a populist person, right? Or a populist strategist. Uh, an example of this could come from Nick Nanos, who would make the argument that Trudeau is a populist character, and p- particularly during the election time he would come out with this idea of hey the middle class we got to protect the middle class we got to raise the middle class we can't allow for instance in 2015 we can't allow for the Harper conservative elite to impact the 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 middle class you know and you started hearing terms like cronyism or harper cronyism come from the true government particularly during the election and i mean harper didn't help himself with uh, the barbaric cultural practices hotline, and and this approach of you know don't give refugees healthcare, and uh, uh, and let's make voting harder, and so these are kind of populist tendencies as well. And Harper did emerge from a populist party roots in a sense. So. Uh, you know, you do see you do see a rise. Uh, sorry, you do see a uh, uh, populism that exists in societies where, or in political parties where populism may not be a part of their strategies during the interim be- between elections. Right during their tenure, Trudeau is not necessarily a populist? Is very much a part of the elite in a sense or the establishment, if you want to consider him that. But beyond that, you'll see that rhetoric come out in the election times, just because it's a populist strategy and it works, right? It's a left populist strategy and it works. And that's why they adopt it. The danger comes down to when you start seeing, and exactly what I was just talking about with the Harper example, when you start seeing uh, right-wing populism or or right-wing fringe populism coming out and targeting certain groups, uh, and and essentially saying that these groups are the groups that we should worry about, or these groups are the groups that we should kind of push aside in our society. And an excellent way to explain this would be by John Judas, who who looks at populism and effectively said that left-wing populism is dyadic and right-wing populism is triadic. Left-wing populism pits The elite against the people. Right-wing populism pits the elite against the people and uses an out group as a target uh, to, you know, get their message across. Populists will always, regardless of left or right, find a common enemy so that people can say, "Oh, this is why I have to vote for this person." And so, a classic example of this was Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Right, his his approach was the United States and George Bush devil, and he said this, quote unquote, in the UN speech uh, at one point, and he said, George Bush is the devil incarnate himself. And he he essentially riled up his support within his people, within the, the, the Venezuelan population by saying the United States is who we need to fight back against. And you often see that. You'll see that with Trump as well. Trump used Hillary Clinton as a target, you know, and he used uh, AOC as a target. He used Ilhan Omar as a target. He used all these women in this case here right as a target and said hey you need to vote for me so that we can't we don't we don't fall into a trap it's very interestingly very interestingly that to this day the republican party are still using clinton as a target Right, because it worked in the past. They they can't. Nothing is sticking to Joe Biden in a sense, because he's just so establishment and boring in a sense. And boring is good sometimes, trust me. But you know, nothing is necessarily sticking to Biden. So they're they're saying, "Hey, let's go back to Hillary Clinton because that worked, and it's still riling up the base support in a sense." So you, this is where the dangers of populism comes out is when you start seeing these outgroups being attacked, and that's where you start seeing discrimination, xenophobia, marginalization. you start seeing people being targeted and you start seeing the rise of hate in a society. You start seeing the rise of Islamophobia. You start seeing the rise of anti-Semitism. You start seeing the rise of gender inequality. You start seeing, you know, this is all anti-Asian hate very recently, right? Particularly with the way that Trump espoused the COVID uh, pandemic issue, right? This is where we start seeing the dangers of populism when you start targeting these groups of people and it's worrisome because people die. People get hurt, right? The, the, the This is the danger that comes out. The the rhetoric translates to actual violence. And if we can't stop that violence, well, then the rhetoric is dangerous because it's inciting that violence. It's inciting, for instance, what you saw January 6th, an insurrection in a sense, a storming of what we around the Western world call the bastions of democracy, right? The halls of democracy is, you know, in Washington, right? And we see this uh, attack on that? Well, that's worrisome, right? And it doesn't mean. And, and the, the worrisome part is it can happen anywhere, right? And that's why we need to analyze populism and see what results may emerge from these populist from the populist rhetoric, so that we can a be aware of them, B – try to avoid that violence and stop that violence. We don't want a divided society. We want, in Canada at least, we want a multicultural society and a diverse society that works with one another. Anyway, I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you are giving us lots to think about, which is which is fantastic. So I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier about misinformation. And I think you've already answered this in some of your answers to other questions I've had, but I think it would be interesting to kind of tease this out a little bit more explicitly. On June 6th, the uh, be- before the event happening in the United States took over the news cycle, there was a very brief window where uh, there had been a report issued in, in Canada on misinformation and Warning about links to extremism, particularly, I think, misinformation around COVID, if I'm recalling correctly. So I'm just wondering how does misinformation create risks for us, not just on individual levels, uh, as you alluded to with some of the hate actions that have been seen, but mm-hmm. also on uh, national security levels?
1: Mm-hmm. So misinformation. There's a danger that comes with misinformation. We've seen this with COVID, uh, very much so. Uh, misinformation in the COVID era is, you know, uh, it, it shows us. It shows us not only the dangers, but the the cracks and the fractures that exist within our society, and the lack of of direct information. The reason why misinformation exists is because we do get a lot of conflicting. Uh, messaging from the government so this the blame does lay on the government as well here uh, and the people responsible uh for delivering information if we look at the covid pandemic uh, as an example misinformation has exacerbated uh, our population and led to anti-masker movement has led to anti-vaxxer movements something that can be a solution and i've said this before and people don't necessarily see the merit to this but you know the idea of educating the you know the only Old, the old-fashioned public service announcement you know what is a vaccine not a lot of people can tell you what the vaccine does right but if we can you know bring it back to basics right uh, bring it to back to biology class and show people what a vaccine actually does that's a, a classic a, an old traditional approach to combating misinformation otherwise what you'll see is people going to other external sources that don't have have the capacity or the knowledge to deliver the proper information and rely on the mistruths that emerge about the vaccines, for instance, right? Uh, And and from this, you do see as well, again, this idea of the the COVID-fatigued populace, right? The population is tired. And so- Listening to someone who says that the vaccine is going to, you know, implant a chip in you or the 5G towers are going to, you know, uh, connect the chip. Well, you know, you'll see a rise of this because people are already wary of what's going on they're already scared of what's happening out there it's something that they've never seen before it's something and it, it the responsibility is on the government the responsibilities on the media the responsibilities on uh, public health organizations and the responsibilities on these leaders that stoke the misinformation and that promote, uh, this misinformation. So you do see some form of, of populism that emerges or COVID-19 populism, populism, if you will, that emerges as a result of this information. And, you know, it can lead to violent extremism. It can lead to extremism that emerges within our society. And as the report pointed out that, uh, a prolonged pandemic will lead to an increased support and empathy and sympathy towards these right-wing extreme right-wing populist movements that can effectively lead to violence in the in the long run and you do see that with anti-master campaigns you see see that with threats to public health officials you know the, the public health officials are 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 classic examples of you know bureaucrats that are working for the people and you see threats that are are, are are sent to them, right? And so the idea to combat this is to not allow this vacuum uh, or this information vacuum to ex- increase, to expand. And this this does the the impact of this or the the results of this uh, is a as a result of the uh, uh, the vacuum and so the government needs to step up their game here. They can't you know on one day announce some form of restriction that are draconian you know that go back to what we seen in March for instance and then you know when the pandemic started and then all of a sudden re you know rescind all those orders and then provide new orders that make no scientific sense right so it's, I think you know who I'm talking about here. I won't say any names. But, you know, it's 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 basing things on science. It's basing things on actual facts and not emotions. And that is what's happening in, in with the COVID-19 pandemic is, uh, and I've heard this being said before, is that everyone thinks they're an epidemiologist all of a sudden, right? And so, <laughs> you know, we leave that to the actual epidemiologists, you know, they'll be able to tell us what we can and can't. Do. And because the science has evolved, we know what we are allowed and what we are not allowed to do in a sense, right? And we know what will help push down the pandemic and what we can't. And and, you know, and this is when when we level our approach to the people, instead of lecturing at them at the pulpit, as we've seen with politicians from all stripes by the way, we see daily lecturing at the pulpit, right? If we level our approach and speak to people level, in a level-headed sense, we will see positive results. We will see positive results. Some initiatives are good, i.e., you know, in, in in social media, we do see these labels that are emerging, you know, when you talk about COVID-19 or you hashtag COVID-19 or the pandemic, you'll see these labels coming out. Now, these labels aren't necessarily as effective overall, but they are...
0: Oh, I was just going to say, and for listeners who may not be on... These platforms, mm-hmm. I, you're referring to um, Instagram and Twitter. If you tw- if you tweet or post something, it automatically generates a link that you're supposed to follow for accurate COVID information.
1: Right. And so these are great in a sense. Right. But they are not foolproof. Like you can you can ignore them in the long run. And there's a, something in communications where we call it the third party effect where you see effectively uh people that will say oh this misinformation will not impact me i'm i'm a smart person i won't but in reality, it will. They'll say the next person will be impacted by this. But in reality, misinformation can impact uh, can impact everybody, right? You can fall you fall into that trap, and this is where you need to see an increased initiative. Uh, you need to see an increased initiative of unity. In, in an example we can talk about here is during the First World War, you saw the Unity Government, uh, where you know all stripes joined with Sir Robert Borden, and uh, effectively, I'm giving a very very simplistic breakdown of what actually happened. But uh, they joined with Sir Robert Borden to, uh, to overcome the uh, First World War and the crisis that they were experiencing at that time. I'm not saying that we need a unity government today, but what we do need to see is people working together. Right, we do need to see people working together. We can't. Uh, we can't have uh, politicians undermining the COVID nineteen efforts. And if they are undermining it for their own political game, as you see in Ontario happening, where they'll they'll point at you know Doug Ford. Sorry, I'll point out Doug Doug Ford as an example where he is basing the third wave entirely on uh, this idea that the borders were not closed, when we know that in reality uh, only one percent or one point five. Percent of actual COVID cases come from outside of our, inter- our international borders, and the issues lie with the policies that they've adopted within Ontario. That's problematic, right? Admit to the errors of your ways and move on in a way where you can work together with the, the federal government. And I'm talking about everybody all together. The federal government has to work with the provinces. I'm not, you know, scapegoating anyone here. Everyone should be working together because our common goal is to get out of the COVID covid nineteen pandemic, obviously, right? And so unity will bring forth. Of course, opposition is important. We need to question things. We need to always question things, and that's part of democracy, right? But to undermine the efforts is is a problem. To undermine the approach because of your own failings, your own policy failings, that is an issue.
0: We've talked a lot about what has happened in the past past few years, um, and certainly in in the past year and a bit uh, that we've been dealing with COVID. What kinds of issues are you keeping an eye on going forward?
1: oh well I'm keeping an eye on misinformation I'm following the Trump approach I'm following what's happening in Canada that mimics the Trump approach we saw after the last election the rise of a very very ill-fated it died very quickly thankfully but the rise of the wexit movement uh, if you remember that uh, after the last election and this is Western Canadians that are frustrated by the central government and frustrated by a liberal central government the rise of the the Wexit movement was kind of pushed forth by a populist-appealing politician, uh, Michelle uh, Rempel-Garner, and uh, uh, three other of her colleagues, uh, and and, and effectively said that, hey, you need to revamp the equalization payments for Alberta, you need to revamp uh, your approach to Western Canada, you need to see us as a distinct society, in a sense, uh, and you need to revisit your approach to how you deal with Western Canadians, or you will face the threat of secession, Right, we we will secede, and you don't necessarily hear too much of the Wexit movement anymore. But you still see the sentiments that exist, right, uh, in 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 Western Canada. In Quebec, we see the rise of Islamophobia. We see, you know, the rise of. Of uh, targeting uh, uh, minorities based on what they're wearing, and these policies that are emerging that 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 are uh, discriminatory, right? Uh, so there is very much the sentiments that exist in Quebec society as well. So it's not something that is not does not exist in Canada. It's something that really does exist in, in Canada and something that I'm very worried about. When we look at the United States and we look at Trump, people are saying, oh, well, Trump is done and Biden's there, so we don't need to have to worry anymore. And they turn off their TVs and they don't listen to the news anymore. And they're like, oh, you know, the world is great again. Well, no, no. The the issues that emerge here is that Trump is very much, does very much have political strings within the Republican Party, right? And his new, uh, his new slogan is no longer make America great again or keep America great, uh, his new slogan is Save America, you know, save America from Biden, save America from this, the elites, save America from the foreigners, you know. We all remember the first few policies that he came out with was the Muslim ban, right? He came out with uh, a lot of, you know, the border wall. And even though the border wall was a ridiculous initiative, the idea and the concept, the notion of the border wall and the impetus behind it was effectively to say, hey, we are going to separate ourselves from the other, right? and that's what was appealing, and so we still see these sentiments flowing around in our society. We can't ignore these sentiments because what they lead to is increased polarization, and what increased polarization leads to is potential violence and threats to the sanctity of our democratic institutions and our society. So it's it is worrisome, and that, this is what I'm kind of paying attention to these days in Canada and in the United States. And, you know, if we look around the world, you look at Brexit, Brexit has, you know, the the impact of Brexit has has severely impacted uh, 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 the United Kingdom and people within the United Kingdom. And like it or not, I mean, it, it, this is based on, you know, their decision, and I'm not going to criticize their decision, but like it or not, we are a globalized society. We can't ignore the others that exist in this society. We can't ignore our economic relations relationships within this society. Uh, Brexit was pushed forth by Nigel Farage. And Nig- one of Nigel Farage's approaches was this idea of foreigners and immigration. And, you know, we're pushing back against these immigration, uh, against immigrations and immigrants coming into the UK. Well, you know, if we uh, tend to ignore, if we tend to ignore that rhetoric, we'll- we're going to see that increased violence, right? Uh, it- it's-, it's unfortunate that it exists, but this is something that we have to realize that it exists and then we can tackle it properly.
0: Well, you have certainly given us lots to think about, and I will be thinking more care even more carefully than usual, I think, with the news that that I consume to to kind of think about uh what, what my responsibility is in terms of what to believe and to take on board and how to how to understand things. It's certainly a, a complicated landscape, I think, that many of us find find ourselves navigating these days. So 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 thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode. We appreciate your feedback on social media at Brock Humanities. And in the show notes, you can find the link to a transcript as well as links to some of the articles and news items featuring Ibrahim's work. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rocku.ca forward slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at rockhumanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app, so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. The music is by Khalid Imam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University
0: Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This
1: podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.